Let's bow for a word of prayer as we look into God's word today. Our Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who came to earth. Came on a mission to bear our sin, to defeat death and Satan, rising from the dead, and who lives now today interceding at your right hand. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns over heaven and earth, and who will reign throughout all eternity with you. We praise you for the promises that we have, and we thank you for your word, which guides us to understand who he was better. And I pray that we will understand today what it means to follow you, and that we will consider the work that Jesus did while he was here on earth in a way that changes the way that we think and live our daily lives. For your glory and to your honor, we desire, Lord, to attend the word this morning. I pray that you will strengthen and encourage your people through it, that the Spirit of God would work to uplift and to convict and to change us. We thank you for what you are doing in our assembly. We thank you, God, for the changes that you are bringing about through the ongoing preaching and teaching of your word together. And we thank you for the privilege now that we have to attend your truth and ask that we will do so with earnest hearts, that you allow us to stay awake and alert and to consider what you are saying to your church this day. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Abraham Lincoln once said that God must have liked ordinary people because he made so many of them. Indeed, he did. In fact, from external appearances, even Jesus was an ordinary man. God's sovereign design, let me stress those words, his sovereign design for the incarnation included Jesus' birth in a stable to a peasant woman. That plan included Jesus working well into adulthood as an obscure craftsman in a middle-rate town, far from the power structures of his weak nation, which was at that time languishing under the dominance of a conquering state, the empire of Rome. The prophet Isaiah said of Messiah in 53, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. From all appearances, Jesus was an ordinary man who lived in ordinary obscurity. He enjoyed no physical, political, or financial advantage to jumpstart his ministry or to increase his popular appeal. But as that ministry began, it was soon apparent that the extraordinary power of God was at work through this ordinary man. As Jesus, as Luke rather, has demonstrated to this point in the book, Jesus has the power to heal every disease. He has authority to cast out demons. And his healing power demonstrates to all that he has the power to forgive sins. And, as we looked last week, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus did not bring good looks or wealth or political connections to the plate. 
The Father did not permit any of these external and temporal benefits to cloud the picture. It was clear to all that Jesus' powers came from God alone. Everyone, I think, realized this, though, of course, we understand that not everyone wanted to accept it. And so along with Jesus' unfolding display of authority in the book of Luke, we have witnessed a rising opposition, a chorus of opposition against him, particularly from the officials of Israel. Jesus' ministry is proving to be a wedge that separates people off into two camps. On the one side are the people who respect Jesus, who see who he is, and who want to follow him. On the other side of the wedge are people who reject Jesus and are beginning more and more to oppose him. And the opposition is really beginning to build. Yet as it does, we are reminded that Jesus also has many loyal followers. And in the face of growing hostility to his ministry, he moves to organize those followers, to train them, and to mobilize them for ministry. This effort starts characteristically with what? It starts characteristically with prayer. And we notice this in verse 12 of Luke chapter 6. One of those days that it happened at that time, in that time period, that Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. He went out to a mountainside indicates that he seeks solitude. He purposefully secludes himself so that he can be alone with the Father. This was a habitual discipline for Jesus. Remember back to chapter 5 and verse 16, where it says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The second part of 6.12 says, He spent the night praying to God. This phrase that we have translated here, spent the night, is a very unique Greek word. And it could be translated something like, to watch through the night. The word speaks of expending energy to keep oneself awake through the night hours when your body is desperate for sleep. It was used by doctors who would write about keeping an all-night vigil and staying up to watch a person who was sick to ward off death through the night. This is the word that is applied to Jesus, and as I recall, I believe the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Jesus is working with energy to stay awake through this entire night that he may pray. Now we have to stop here or we really miss the point. Because I think it is very easy for us to dismiss this as, well, Jesus was divine after all. He can do things like that. Possessing a divine nature, we might be tempted to think of this discipline as somehow easier for Jesus. I don't believe that it was in any way. He was as human as we are. Jesus had a physical body that functioned just as our bodies function. He desperately wanted to sleep. Knowing the life of Jesus, it had been a busy day. But he stayed up through this entire night to seek the face of his Father. Something is on his heart Something is on his mind that says, tonight you must put sleep aside and you must talk to the Father for hours. Why did he do that? 
Well, the text does not tell us directly, but contextually we know that he was preparing to choose 12 men for his inner circle, 12 official representatives who were going to carry on the work after he died. We see that in verse 13. Was he praying then for wisdom to choose the right men? Probably. Jesus had set aside the full use of his omniscient powers, and he may well have pleaded with God to show him the men he should choose in the morning. Just as we might face some type of similar choice, so Jesus is seeking the face of God to know who he should choose. Was Jesus praying about the ministry that these men would take on with Jesus in the days ahead? Probably so. Was he praying for their ministry after he died? Probably so. He knew where this would end. And he knew he needed to invest himself in some followers who would carry on the cause after he was gone. He obvious, we obviously do not know the precise content of Jesus' prayer, but we can know that whatever it was, he stayed up all night to talk to his father. Let me stop to observe the obvious here. If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to so depend on his Father, do not we need to do the same? Jesus told us in John chapter 15 and verse 5, without me you can do nothing. And so often I think as Christians, is it not true of you as it is with me that we seem to get into patterns where we live life as if we can do most things. And it's those times when we really need God that we go to Him in prayer. Well, certainly this is a unique time and where there is a great need for Jesus, and I think that's what leads to this all-night vigil in prayer. But we need to remember the words of Christ, without me you can do nothing. For Jesus' prayer was not optional, nor was it obligatory routine. For Jesus' prayer was essential. One commentator, as I was reading, asked this question. How many of us Christians today have ever spent a whole night in prayer? I think that's a fair question for people who say that they are followers of Jesus Christ. It's a question many of you know we've taken seriously as a church. In fact, in just a matter of weeks, January 9th through 10th, we're scheduled to do just that. And I can tell you there's no other reason than verses like this in the Bible that would lead anyone to do something like that. I love sleep. We all do. But there are times when we need to say to God, I need you more than I need sleep. And so we gather on January 9th and 10th at 9 o'clock on a Friday night to pray until the sun comes up on Saturday morning. Now, not everyone can do that. Not everyone should do that, perhaps. But it is a pattern and a discipline of our church that we might practice what Jesus did. I don't look forward to those times with pride and bravado. I look forward to those times with weak knees because it's hard to set aside prayer and it's hard to pray for 10 hours. 
And let me say, when we're done, I think we all head back for bed. Jesus came down from the mountain and went into one of the busiest days of his life. But he knew that it is not upon physical strength alone that we live. We live in the presence of God. And he showed us that. I'd encourage you, if you have any heart for it at all, join us here on that night in a few weeks. It won't all be pretty. You'll get very tired, and you'll find out very quickly how small you are. But I'd encourage others to join us. It has been, and I think I would speak for many, one of the greatest aspects of spiritual growth in my life and in our lives as a church for those who participate to whatever hour God gives them strength. All we're trying to do is to imitate Christ. That's the end of it. But I'd encourage you to that end. Jesus spent the night watching, exerting energy to stay awake, to keep his mind focused on his Father in prayer. He comes down then from the mountain and selects the apostles. Verse 13, when the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. We see their selection here. Then at verse 14, their names are given. Let's consider, first of all, the selection of these 12. Jesus summons a larger group of followers, you'll notice here in verse 13. That's a detail for some reason I don't know that I've ever concentrated a whole lot of thought on or ever even really noticed. But there are other disciples who are surrounding Jesus here. And out of that group, he chooses others. Now, why does Jesus do this? Let's cross-reference Mark chapter 3 and verse 14. Mark gives us just a little more insight here. I think it's fair to bring in. Why is Jesus choosing these twelve? Mark chapter 3 and verse 14 Mark 3 and verse 14 says that he appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. That they might be with him. I read numerous commentators who were saying, isn't this wonderful Jesus too needed company? I, I don't know that that's the point of this. Uh, certainly he did. He was a human being and he loved people. But I don't think it's saying here he needed people to be with him. In fact, I think some of these, very clear, historically, chronologically, that some of these disciples had already been with him for some time. That's not the point here. He wants them to be with him that he may invest himself uniquely in these people. This is a concept, or a context rather, of discipleship. The disciple in Jesus' day would follow his rabbi to the end, would live with this man and, and follow everything that he said and did. He wants these men to go with him now everywhere in an official capacity as his disciples. I'd like us to go then to Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. Jesus at this point has died and risen from the dead. His followers, some of these very same disciples, are carrying on the cause in Jesus' absence. 
And we notice this very intriguing phrase here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, as Peter and John have gotten into some very hot water with the Sanhedrin, the ruling class in Jerusalem and over Israel, the Israelites there. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, there's a phrase that we continue to see through our uh, text today, or uh, the concepts that we're developing today. They were ordinary men. There's nothing unusual about these men. But when they saw them, notice here, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What a tremendous phrase. Would that it would be said of us, anybody who saw us that did not know Christ could say of us, that person has been with Jesus. Ordinary men whom Jesus clearly intended to imprint his character upon and his way of life upon them. Jesus wants to pour his life into theirs, to train them to minister as he ministers, to lead them to carry out the work of the gospel alongside him after he is gone. These men will live with Jesus and inculcate everything he does into their lives so that unbelievers will see them and say, these ordinary men have been with Christ. Back to Luke chapter 6, he designates them apostles. In that day, an apostle was a messenger sent away with the authority of the one that was sending him. Speaking of apostles, the Mishnah, a rabbinical book, explains the one sent by the man is as the man himself. That was its definition, one rabbi's definition of what it meant in that day. We understand it from that context of what it meant to be an apostle. An apostle was one sent by the man as the man himself. So Jesus wants to pour his life into these twelve and to send them out to be Jesus wherever they go. They're apostles, sent ones, and so Jesus is obviously looking to the future. He's looking forward to the establishment of the church and the worldwide dissemination of the gospel. These men would become the foundation, in fact, upon which the church was established. Their example, their miracle-working powers, their inspired writings, their legacy would become the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. These men would lead the church in its assault on the gates of hell, and they still do. Who were these men? Who were these ordinary men? Verse 14 begins that list down through verse 16. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon, Judas, and Judas Iscariot. Just a few general observations briefly. The New Testament records four lists of the apostles. In each of the lists, Peter is first and Judas Iscariot is last. The only other similarity, or the, the only place that where they are all identical beyond those two places, is person number one, person number five, and person number nine. 
In other words, Peter, Philip, and James, son of Alphaeus, are always in the same position. But within those three groups of four, they're shifting around of how the disciples are listed. That is not proof positive, but it is fairly strong indication that they may have then been arranged in groups of four, three groups of four. The first, as I mentioned, in each of the lists is Peter. Peter named Simon, named Peter by Jesus, named the Rock, clearly the early leader of the apostolic band. It's quite clear, however, that he was not vested with unique authority over the other apostles, as the Roman church insists. And it's quite easy to show this and demonstrate this biblically. We'll not take time to do that today. But it's quite clear that what is said to Peter by way of authority is also said to all of the other apostles. We could turn to Ephesians 2 and find again proof positive that Peter is not singled out as uniquely authoritative. I think a better way of looking at Peter is to say that he was a leader among equals. And if you take every reference to Peter in his relationship with the other apostles, that phrase works perfectly. It fits like a hand in a glove. A leader among equals. He was a leader. He was not a uniquely authoritative leader over the other apostles or over the church that would be birthed in Acts chapter 2. Andrew, you notice next, is Simon's brother and fishing partner. James and John are also fishing partners with Peter and Andrew, referred to as the sons of thunder. They were strong-minded, passionate men. A lot of fish must have jumped in the boat with these four fishing together, Peter and James and John. They were strong, assertive men, passionate, zealous guys. They got after it. They probably had a pretty good fishing business and, in fact, had the best day in fishing in human history, if you will remember back. But they were working together. Interesting point here. Uh, these two men, James and John, were cousins of Jesus. Their mothers were sisters. John would live a long life and die of an old age. A very different end was in store for James, who does not have long to live. He would die executed with a sword under the reign of King Herod, only making it to Acts chapter 12. Philip leads the second group of Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Now Matthew, we have met as Levi back in chapter 5. Thomas is believed to have taken the gospel to India. That is a possibility. James, the son of Alphaeus, now heads up the third group of men, which includes Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a sect within Jerusalem. I'm sorry, within Judaism. And they agreed essentially with the strict system of the Pharisees the one difference was that they advocated violent resistance to Rome. Now, that didn't mean marching an army through the streets of Jerusalem, but what it meant was they were people within this movement, within this sect, they got very good at assassination. And that, that was the zealots, uh, very vehemently opposed to Roman rule. So Simon was a man of nationalist political interests, a man who was intensely anti-Roman. Verse 16, we find there Judas, the son of James, and Judas, uh, he is, by the way, referred to as Thaddeus in some of the other uh, lists, and Judas Iscariot. That is an amazing thought. To stop and to think that after an entire night of prayer, Jesus made a purposeful decision to select Judas, 
as one of his apostles. This man would, of course, become Christ's betrayer in the end. But I, I don't know, it's not made clear to us precisely how much Jesus knows about Judas, but what we can know is God the Father knows everything about him. And God the Father ordains and providentially leads through Christ's prayers to have Judas selected to be in this group of apostles. We need to live with that. And we need to learn to live with that in our own lives. The text is fairly simple and straightforward. And it brings us to a difficult place to continue on because we enter into the teaching of Jesus here. But I, I think then it will allow us a few moments to stop and to reflect on what we have seen more carefully. And I'd like to put this under a number of headings. First of all, human diversity and divine election. Human diversity and divine election. There's not a lot that we can know about these men, and some more than others. But you have already picked up, it's quite clear that this was a diverse lot. Epitomizing that diversity, I could, if I could use the words of a previous generation Welsh preacher, John Jones, he put it this way, we have here Matthew the tax gatherer and Simon the tax hater. Just to give a little picture into the distinction that, was, that made up this group, the distinctions. Matthew, who had sold his soul to work for Rome. And Simon, who had hung out with terrorists specializing in assassination attempts against Roman officials, are brought together by Jesus Christ into one band. I would suspect those two men had some different political positions. Now, undoubtedly, there is a sense of honing here of Jesus, perhaps even we don't know of, of some uh, previous conversion, so that perhaps they've left some of their ideas beside. Obviously, Matthew has had a change of life. Obviously, the zealot is not the zealot as he was. But nonetheless, they have come at life from very different perspectives, and here they are brought together. To draw another contrast, we have Matthew, who has been a man who deals with wealth, a white-collar worker, who made a living indoors balancing accounts and tallying earnings in the daytime while cutting deals and brokering influence at dinner parties by night. In stark contrast, you see them there, the four fishermen. There's Peter and Andrew, James and John. All they know is their small fishing company, blue-collar workers, back-breaking work done unpretentiously on the sea and the sand. Of Galilee. Jesus purposefully selected a diverse group of men, and the unifying thread that held them together was Jesus. If they had all been fishermen, if they had all been tax collectors, if they had all been zealots, who knows what may have happened. But the one common center was Jesus Christ. That's how God works, and I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for this church and the unique diversity that God has brought here 
By God's grace, that diversity will continue. It will grow. It will develop. But let's put it together with the people that you know. We come from different economic situations. There are different interests that we have. There are various ages, various national backgrounds, various types of life before we found Christ. Some growing up within solid Christian homes. Some growing up in homes that were very messed up, frankly. And some growing up in homes where Jesus was never mentioned, unless it was to swear. We've come from various backgrounds, some having been saved out of a life of aggressive sin. We have past drug addicts sitting here in this assembly to illustrate one, and other sins that do not even need to be mentioned. We have others that have just grown up very peacefully within the context of the church. God brings us together from different walks of life to bring our different perspectives and to meld together into the unit and to the people that He wants us to be. Now that's a job, isn't it? Obviously, we need to continue to work and to develop and to nurture one another and to grow, to love and appreciate the differences that God brings here. But what will bring us together in commonality is this one man, Jesus Christ. If he alone matters, then we can set aside all of those differences. In fact, we can invite them and come together at the same place. You remember the story of the great southern general who fought against the idea of freeing slaves and was found one day after the war on his knees at the front of a church building praying. There was the great stately white-haired Robert E. Lee walking up next to him And kneeling at the same altar was a freed slave. Someone assumed that Lee would be offended and asked him about that, if that was not a great indignity to have a slave praying next to him. And Robert E. Lee looked at that man and said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It makes no difference where you've been or who you are. It makes makes no difference how God has brought you to himself. We come together around the person of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ is highly lifted up, he will draw us to himself and thereby will draw us to one another. May we lift up Christ that we might draw together around him. That is this group of men. Very diverse in many respects, but brought together around Jesus Christ. Let me look secondly under a second heading, human frailty and divine providence. Let's look at this diverse group and consider their human frailty and divine provision, rather. Divine provision. It's quite clear that this diverse group of men was also very ordinary. Jesus purposefully chose not to seek out power brokers or influential leaders of the nation. He chose ordinary men to serve with him and become the foundation of the church. 
You've maybe heard the story of the little town in Indiana named Hickory and the basketball team that came from there in the early 50s. It's uh, depicted in the movie Hoosiers. And you may, maybe you've even seen that movie and that ragtag team of, I think it was maybe just seven players. They couldn't even put ten players, five on the bench, maybe just seven players, and one was questionable at that. This small little town in Indiana. But through a series of providential events, a very good basketball coach came to this little town and took this ragtag team and brought them together one step at a time into something that really began to click. And Little Hickory began to knock off teams left and right, and as was the situation at that time, you were in Indiana, you just played for the state tournament. If you were good enough to beat the big guys, you went ahead and played the big guys. Well, that happened to Hickory. They went to the state tournament at Indianapolis. And, we can say, in God's providence, came back from a late fourth quarter deficit to win the state tournament over a big city team. It was such a shocking event, it's been made into a movie and is remembered to this day in Indiana. These 12 men here are the hickory of discipleship history. Look at them standing there. They're nothing. Jesus scans the crowd of disciples. He sets his eye on them one by one. He calls them forward to stand with him and to demonstrate in dramatic fashion that these 12 will be his team. And if the world stands and looks at that team, they can do nothing but snicker. This is the best you've got, Jesus? This is the best team you can assemble? I mean, to start with, you've got four guys that don't know anything but hauling fish into a boat. Who are they? They're nobodies. Ordinary nobodies from outstate. But God would take these ordinary 12 men and they would turn the world upside down. We still sing their names and we'll recognize their importance throughout all eternity. Not because of who they were, but because of who Jesus is, who selected them for this grand purpose. And it reminds us, and God is teaching us here, that He uses, off the point, He uses extraordinary people when they trust His power and not their own. But the problem is, extraordinary people don't find that very natural. And so God far more often chooses very ordinary people to carry forward His purposes so that no one is in any doubt as to where the power came from. Why does He choose ordinary people? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. Speaking here in context of the gospel, 
that Paul is to disseminate, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure, that treasure is the gospel, in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He puts the treasure of the gospel, he puts the mission of the gospel in the hands of ordinary people to show that the power comes not from them, but from the Lord. We are vessels to carry that message. These men were vessels to carry that message. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Paul develops this theme in a little different way, but he says the same thing in chapter 12 and verse 7, speaking of a revelation that he had received and God then giving him a thorn in the flesh, pleading, verse 8, three times that it would be removed. Here's the Lord's answer, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast, says Paul, all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That can apply to God's selection of His people. And it can apply again to our assembly here. There are no great people among us. This is not a great church. This is an ordinary church with ordinary people who can be used as instruments in the hand of God to show His extraordinary power. And that is enough. These ordinary men, most of whom left no recognizable mark on the history of the church, were used by God to turn the world on its head in one generation to assault the gates of hell as no one had ever done before them. See those ordinary men standing there around Jesus and see the faces of that crowd of disciples that is facing them and realize standing there in that ragtag crew of ordinary people are men, eleven of whom will have their names engraved on the foundation stones of the eternal city. There we will see in that pattern under that city, the foundation jewel stones, the names of Peter and Andrew and James and John, Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James and Simon and Judas, son of James, and Matthias, who replaces Judas Iscariot. Revelation 21 and verse 14. Why? Because they were so powerful? Because they were so extraordinary? Because God in some way rewarded them? No, God chose them as weak vessels through whom to channel His power to the world. And that was simply His choice. How encouraging that is for us. God doesn't look for extraordinary people. He doesn't look for people with unique gifts and unique connections. He looks for simple people who are willing to trust Him and to serve as a vessel through whom His power can affect the world. There's great hope in that. There's grace and there's glory that goes to God in it. This is God's way and we can be thankful. Now that brings up another point, 
And that is divine sovereignty in human selection. Divine sovereignty in human selection. Let's admit it. As Westerners, we struggle with this picture, don't we? I do. you got all these disciples out there, and Jesus comes in front of all of them and points the one in some way, calls one forward, one after another, just 12 out of all of these disciples, and stands them up and says, these are my men. Now, as Westerners, we're kind of pre-programmed against selective discrimination. Now, discrimination, of course, in our context is, in fact, a naughty word, and it is often. But I mean discrimination in a right sense of the word. Anybody here who's married has discriminated, right? You've discriminated against every woman on earth except one, the one you chose. I mean in that proper sense of discrimination. This is selective discrimination, but our culture doesn't like that idea. That God would choose one believer over another to be closer to his circle of influence. Now, God doesn't have a problem with that. In fact, understands that that's how the world's created to function, and that's what has to be. As Bible believers, we have to come to terms with the fact that this is how he works. These twelve, not another twelve, Later, there would be 70 who would be chosen for a special mission, 500 who would see him and resurrected for, but it is forever after these 12 who are his apostles. They were not perfect men by any means. They'll demonstrate that quite clearly in the text of Luke as we follow through. In fact, every disciple of Jesus could assume to have outstripped Judas Iscariot for nomination later. They could all make a case and say, was not I better than Judas Iscariot? Why him? God has his purposes, and we need to trust his hand, and we need to be at peace with that. I need to be at peace with where I am. You need to be at peace with where you are. That doesn't mean that we do not plow forward and seek to develop and to grow and to become what God wants us to be and to take on further responsibilities as he permits, but we do need to be at peace with where we are. That's a hard thing sometimes when disappointments come. We need to thank him for where he's placed us and not ask questions about his sovereign design. We notice here not only discrimination, but organized leadership, very obviously. That's always part of God's plan as well, and it's part of his plan for the church to have very specific organization. We see here, and we have to mention it again, the antagonist, Judas Iscariot. Jesus would have to live with this decision. Judas never went away until the very bitter end. Jesus chooses a man that John says in chapter 6 has a demon. We could stand back and say, well, that was a really bad decision. Well, we don't know why Jesus chose him. He perhaps knew what he was really made of. We don't know. But we can conclude this and watch it very carefully, that proximity to Jesus is no guarantee of salvation. Judas Iscariot was very close to Christ for a very long time and did not know God. Such a person's true heart and attitude will usually show itself somewhere along the lines. But proximity to Jesus is never a guarantee of salvation, and we can't forget that. 
But the point here that we need to emphasize is discerning the will of God does not guarantee easy circumstances. Sometimes God chooses an antagonist to join the ranks. Sometimes God chooses an antagonist to be part of your life at work or in your family or somewhere. It doesn't mean that you've necessarily missed the will of God. We have to be, again, at peace with his choices. Another heading, divine investment in human character. I'll be very brief here, but I think it is important to consider this. Jesus invested himself in developing people. He gave himself to nurture the character of his disciples. Jesus did not write a book. God knows he could have. But that wasn't his calling. He did not write a book. He did not form an institution. It was enough to pour his life into 12 men through intimate discipleship. And it brings to our attention the inherent value of the discipleship process. To pour our lives into individuals. That flame is alive in our church. It needs to catch fire. It needs to develop. But it's going on, on a lot of different levels. And I praise God for that. But it needs to advance. We need to pour our lives into individuals and to influence individuals. We don't need to write books and we don't need to form institutions and we really don't need to form any other programs in our church. Programs are just an organization of what we're already doing, but we don't need to develop programs to reach a world for Christ and to change people. What we need to do is invest in people's lives to influence them on a one-on-one level and nurture one another in the things of God. Morris says it this way, Jesus never set up an organization. These 12 men represent the total of his administrative machinery. You 12 guys, you're going to follow me around. You're going to go where I go, sleep where I sleep, listen to my sermons, help me get from place to place. You're going to live with me. That's the end of it. Now he organizes what they do. I think they're formed into groups, they're sent out on various missions, they're told places to go and places where he'll meet them. They're asked to provide and to help and all of that, but basically they just live together. And that's really when it comes down to it what's going to matter in a local church is that we just live together. That we influence one another, that we pour our lives into one another out of love. And that leads to my final thought here, and that is divine commission of human witnesses. The divine commission of human witnesses. These 12 men were made apostles in order to bear witness to the gospel of Christ worldwide. They were chosen to be sent out and they were chosen to die. Tradition suggests that only the apostle John died of old age and he spent some of his days in exile at that under persecution. The point is that Jesus uses no one but to advance his cause against opposition. The comfortable, convenient Christianity of our day is a mirage. It's a mirage into which many cultural Christians are buying into. It's a joke. Worse than that, it's a sadistic joke. 
as Satan continues to dilute the theological strains from God's Word and to present a Christianity that is cool and comfortable and unopposed. Jesus picked disciples to die. And though we don't have a lot of death machines surrounding us here in this culture, we should not be surprised when people oppose. Yes, being a disciple of Christ is a privilege, but it is also a call to give your life. Being a disciple of Christ is a call to orient your life toward the love of others. No matter the cost, it is a call to look outward and a call to give, not a call to look inward and to simply rejoice in our status. Why are you here today? We have not gathered here today simply to sit together and congratulate ourselves in our newfound relationship in Jesus. We rejoice in it, we celebrate it, we sing about it, we are thankful for it, we edify one another. But we're not here to just congratulate ourselves that we're in the circle. We are here to reach outside of the circle and to tell a world that knows not Christ that He has come and that He has borne their sin. We are to be a loving, giving, reaching people. Are you a follower of this Jesus we won't have our names permanently engraved on the foundation stones of the heavenly Jerusalem. At least not as far as Revelation indicates. But just as importantly for us in the sovereignty of God, we can have our names written in the Lamb's book of life for all eternity. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ and do you know that you are His child? Do you know that your name has been written in that book. Not because you go to a Christian church, not because you call yourself a Christian, but because you have come to a place where you have met Jesus, have laid out your sin for Him to see, and have handed it to Him. You've trusted in what He did in your place on the cross. You've trusted that He rose from the dead in victory and you are following Him. He's reoriented your life to see it from His perspective as His child and as His disciple. Will your name be there? Will it be written there? If you're not sure, I would call you today to seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Come to the Lord and find rest. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, Father, that you call ordinary people and that you bring us to saving faith through Jesus, not to saving works, but to saving faith. We do the trusting, we do the asking, we do the calling, you do the saving. And we thank you for this plan.